All right, well, I will now be reading uh, our scripture for this morning. Our scripture this morning comes from Philippians 4, 2 through 9. Philippians 4, 2 through 9, 2 through 9 and I'll be reading from the ESV. Starting in verse 2. I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Well, the signs of Christmas are all around us, if you haven't noticed. Um, Just when you walk in, you see trees with lights on them. That would be weird if you saw that any other time of the year. I was hanging at Global Gallery talking with a friend, and a car drove by with a tree on top of it. And I just paused in that moment because, you know, it's like, yeah, this is happening. Someone's driving around town. A number of people are driving around town with trees that they chopped down on their car. If it were July and you saw someone driving down High Street with a tree on their car, that would be weird. You, you would wonder what's going on. The signs of Christmas are all around. If you go to the mall, you might see families taking their children and putting them on the lap of a stranger who's wearing a big red suit and a big beard. If you put your kids on a stranger's lap any other time of the year, that would be weird. But Christmas, it's okay. It's just a sign that it's here. On Christmas morning, if you have children and they wake up and they go and they find presents and maybe even uh, cookies half eaten, or milk half drank. Sign, right? Sign of Christmas. Sign that Santa was, was there. Proof. It's, it proves. It proves some things. Um, there are signs of Christmas are all around us. Uh, we've been in a sermon series looking at fruit of the Spirit, the signs of God's work in our life, the signs of God's power bringing life and transformation. And we've been looking at the sign of patience and gentleness and goodness, faithfulness. And this morning we look at the sign of peace. When the Spirit gets a hold of our life, one sign of its power is peace, personal peace. Now it's interesting, another sign of the Christmas season that many therapists and counselors know is that during this Christmas season of all the lights and all the festivities and all the talk about joy and love and peace, there's often the feeling of despair. One sign of the Christmas season is an increase in feeling of pain and isolation. And so a question for us this morning as we talk about peace, 
is how can we experience it? Not just talk about peace, but actually experience genuine peace. In our passage in Philippians, the Apostle Paul, he's writing to a local church and he desires that they experience peace. And look at how he closes it off. Or in verse 7, he says, and the peace of God, he's talking about a kind of peace. Peace of God. And then he closes it in verse 9. He says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And so what can we learn? What can we see in the life of Paul? How can we experience genuine peace? In our text, we want to look at three ways, what we can learn about peace that enables us to experience it. Uh, First, what do we learn about peace? We learn that peace is not the absence of pain. That pain is real. And, you know, it it kind of feels like it's not the case. I mean, Paul, he, he says this, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Like that he qualifies it. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. I'm going to repeat it. All the time rejoicing. Later, he's going to say, I've learned to be content in all things. You want to, there's a part of us in these conversations about peace when we hear statements like this. You want to say, who is this guy? Rejoice in the Lord always. What is he talking about? Paul must be some privileged pastor sitting around in his room just writing about the things of God, totally detached from the pains that most people experience. But that's not Paul's story. <laughs> Paul, on one occasion, he's writing to another local church in 2 Corinthians. He, he wants them to know they're challenging his credentials, and they think that he's a man of weakness. And he doubles down, and he says, you, you have no idea how weak I am. And listen to, just, just hear this. Paul, Paul goes, on, he goes on a tangent. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, just, just one stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. Three times. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from river, rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. (laughs) Paul's like, you want to talk about weakness? I know weakness. And in fact, in this letter to the church in Philippi, he's, he's writing from prison. He's in prison when he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And I find it really interesting. If you look at verse 7, he says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will what? Will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You know, I wonder if in prison, he was looking at the guards, preventing him from freedom. Experiencing, feeling the pain of imprisonment. And that's what pain feels like often. Not just momentary little absences of peace, but when pain imprisons you. There's a number of ways we feel the imprisonment of pain. Uh, Often we, we feel it through relational division. 
in the passage. It begins, Paul, what, what sends him on this tangent about anxiety and peace is the lack of unity among two sisters who he loves, Eudea and Syntyche. He says, I entreat you to agree in the Lord. These are two women who were leaders with him, who worked with him, and now there's division. And we know what this is like. When people who we were at one time partnering with in something, at one time we were working together, at one time friends, something happens and now they can feel enemies. And for many of us, the anxiety of our Christmas and this Christmas season is right here. It's going back and spending time with family or friends and feeling the division. And when I read this, there's a part of me that wants to know, hey, all right, well, Paul, you know, uh, take a side. Who's right? He doesn't. And that's often how relational pain is expressed. We want there to be right and wrong and sign, but often it's just two people unwilling to pursue love and unity. We can feel imprisoned by relational pain. Uh, also imprisoned by grief and loss. Earlier in Philippians, Paul writes about this, about the pain of uh, being imprisoned, and he even says that it would be better to die. It would be better to die. You can imagine just the pain of life. You know, in the Psalms, there are often poems expressing pain and lament. And one example is Psalm 102. It's a poem, it's a lament, and here the psalmist. And as we, as we engage this, let's be reminded that the Bible gives permission, it gives voice, it gives language to our pains. Listen to the poet. He begins, Hear, hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. The psalmist, the poet, he's saying, God, now that I'm in pain, hear me. Hear me now, not just when it's good, not just when I'm praising you easily, but in my pain, are you here, God? And then, and then he gives voice, deeper voice to his longing. Verse 3, for my days pass away like smoke. My bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. I forget to eat my bread because of my loud groaning. My bones cling to my flesh. I am like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. Can you relate to any of this? Look, let's take a closer look. The poet, he says, my heart is struck down like grass. It's withering. Heart that once was alive, full of passion now. Feels like it's withering, dying. You ever feel like your heart is withering away? It says, I forget to eat. So emotionally distraught that just the normal rhythms of sustaining life Lose their appeal. I don't even think about it. You ever in pain and have a lack of peace that the things that used to be appetizing just aren't anymore? It says, I am like a desert owl, an owl of the waste places, alone and in distress. Do you ever feel alone? Maybe you feel that way right now. 
You come to church, everyone's singing songs, talking about peace, talking about joy, and you just feel alone. And look at how he begins in verse 3. It says, my days pass away like smoke. It's here and it's gone. He's commenting on the radical impermanence of life. It seems like nothing lasts. Another poet puts it this way in Psalm 103. He says, as for for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field for the wind passes over it and is gone and its place knows it no more. You know, I like to think of myself being like a tree. (laughs) Strong, rooted, planted somewhere for a long time. You know, in our home, we have a number of, of old, large trees. And if we wanted to get rid of one of those trees, we'd have to call people with large machinery because <laughs> I, I couldn't go out and like pluck it, a tree out of the ground. You need heavy machinery, people who do this for a living, not me. You know, recently, uh, we had a branch that uh, broke off in one of our large trees and my dad and I went out to, to get it off. And it took us an hour and we ended up taking a ladder and rather than climbing out on the ladder, we just were sticking the ladder up in the air trying to poke it off and eventually we did. And we didn't get hurt. It was amazing. We won. That's just one little branch to uproot a tree. It says, our life is like a flower. You know, a child can go and uproot a flower. And we feel this, don't we? A lot of times around this this season. Uh, Recently, I was taking my grandparents home to Cincinnati and we went into their old home. They've since moved into a retirement community and we went back to their home, a place where they lived for 46 years. So many memories in this place. And I recall when I stepped in, the last time I was at their house, a few years ago, was when they were moving. And I remember moving them out. I was so frustrated with my grandma because you know, they had lived there for 46 years and my grandma was a little bit of a, of a hoarder. And being up in the attic and finding all these old clothes and all these old toys that my mom and her siblings used to play with. And there was these bags of empty coffee cans that she would use in youth group to make homemade ice cream. And, you know, you're trying to clean out the house. You take the bags down and and my grandma's like, oh, no, no, you can't throw those away. And it's like, Grandma, what is your problem? They're empty coffee cans. This is trash. I remember that moment, what she's thinking. It hitting her that, yes, they will not be used again. That that, those days of serving in youth group and the smiles and the joys of people, that was in the past. And then as I was standing there in their home, realizing that it's now changed because my, my cousin has, has moved in. It's not my grandparents' home anymore. And I wanted to be like, hey, Jeremy, you know, this is all different now. This is, it needs to go back to the way it was. And I could relate to how my grandma felt. The sadness of change. And many of us, we feel that anxiety, the imprisonment of grief and loss and things that were, at one time we had a meal around Christmas and these people were here and they're not here anymore. bring anxiety, pain, loss. Jesus, he says in John 16, he looks at his disciples 
And he says, in this world, you will have trouble. That's true. Peace is not the absence of pain. Pain is real. Paul feels it. Jesus feels it. His disciples feel it. What trouble is in your life? What are some of the pains that you feel imprisoned by? Pain is real. But also, Paul, he wants to speak into it. He said there's something that is also real and true, not just the pain. You don't need to live in anxiety just seeing and experiencing the pain that this world will bring. There is a truth that can bring hope and healing and peace. Not peace absent of pain, but peace in the midst of pain. Look at what he says in verse 8. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, look at this. What does he say? Think about these things. In the midst of pain, Paul says, think, think. What you believe about the world and the truths that you believe in will shape how you experience pain. Your framework, the lens through which you look at evil and suffering and life will shape how you experience pain and loss. If your lens is scientific naturalism, the view that there is no personal God and that if there is a personal God, we, we could never comprehend him. If that is your view, there are implications on your life. I mean, let's take a few statements. Uh, Charles Darwin he says this, a person who has no assured belief in the existence of a personal God and no belief in a future existence with retribution or reward, such a person can have for his rule of life, as far as I see it, only to follow whatever impulses and instincts are the strongest or whatever seems to him to be the best ones. An early 20th century Supreme Court justice and intellectual Wendell Holmes Jr., he put it this way. He said, there is no reason for attributing to man a significance different in kind from that which belongs to a baboon or a grain of sand. The world has produced me and the rattlesnake, but I will kill it if I get the chance. The only reason is because it is incongruous to the world I want, the world everyone is trying to make according to one's own power. Now we read this. And if you don't believe in a personal God, you can still be offended by this. You say, no, there is right and wrong and justice. This can be offensive. But if you come to that conclusion, if you believe there's no personal God, no creator who thus brings meaning and order and goodness and justice, if that is your view, there is no personal God, to be offended by these statements means you're not thinking. It means you're not living out and thinking the implications of that worldview. And that is what our society tells us the way for peace is to not think. If you go in most books on experiencing peace or on meditation and 
and ridding your mind of truth and experience. For the Christian, though, Paul says, no, no, it's not absence of thinking. You need to think. In the world where you see the trouble and injustices and pains of life, you need to think. Think out God and his goodness and his power. And that's what we see the poet do in Psalm 102. He's lamenting the pains of life. And then he makes a move. He begins to think about God and listen to what he says. Talking to God, he says, of you, God, of old, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away. But you are the same and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. What does the poet do in the face of pain and struggle? Does he say there's pain in the world? There can't be a God. Does he say there's pain in the world? You know, let's just eat, drink, and be merry and live it up. They say there's pain in the world. All right, let's have a good plan. If I just... You know, if I have a good workout plan, um, if I have some, the right uh, New Year's resolution, you know, we can, we can do this. No. He, he becomes a theologian. He thinks about God. He thinks about God's truth. What truths do we see here? One, we see that God is eternal. God is eternal. And because he's eternal, he sees past, present, and future all at once. You know, um, one thing I mention and I talk about from time to time is the, the perspective that I and we can get when you're in an airplane. And when you're taking off and you look down on the city and you look down on the roads and you look down on what's happening and there's this perspective that someone in the middle of the city, in the middle of the neighborhood, they don't have. And one time I actually saw a car accident. I didn't see it happen, but I saw the accident was there and the ambulances and fire trucks. And there's people driving down the the highway further out, not yet in the traffic jam, and you're just thinking, oh man, poor person. You, warning, turn, exit, <laughs> get around this traffic. This is this perspective that you have that someone in the middle of it doesn't experience. You know, we experience life in today. And often how we feel today shapes how we view tomorrow. When I wake up, and I, got a, and I get a bad night's sleep, and I'm just a little, you know, grumpy. And then the boys are, are six and three or four-year-old. They, they start to whine and bicker about each other. And then I realize I'm running late for a meeting. And then I realize I forgot to bring food. And it's like, oh my goodness, you know, one thing after another. And I can think, you know, oh, where is God? Where is God? You know, life is hard. And not just in the little inconveniences, but when we, as, as we were talking about earlier, when we, when we feel loss, in those moments, we look to the future and we can question God's providence. But God, we're reminded, he sees it all together. He's not just shaped by the here and now. He also sees where everything is going. Past, present, future. We also learn that God is unchanging. God is unchanging. The po a poet put it this way in Psalm 103, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting 
That is so good. God is not prone to tangents of anger depending on how he's feeling. Which, unfortunately, I'm not always that way. I recall a baseball coach wasn't always that way that I had growing up. Depended on the moment, uh, how he would respond in a situation. That sometimes our coach, he would be very kind. You strike out, you make a mistake, an error happens, and hey, you know, better luck next time. But then every once in a while, he would just flip out and lose it and start throwing bats and gloves. It was like, oh, coach. And when he's losing it, you don't want to go and talk to him. You don't want to go and, and ha- offer a request. You step away. You know, God never has a tangent. He, he, he never gets angry and flies off the handle and starts throwing things. We can come to him at any time. He's unchanging in a world that is constantly changing. He is the same. We also are reminded that God is weaving everything together for your good. That's why the poet closes out the psalm. He says, the children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. We have security because of God. Uh, Paul, it's interesting in Philippians in verse 6, he says, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. You know, you, you read this and you think, Paul, you're wrong. you got it backwards. First we pray, and then we, we see God work, and then maybe we'll be thankful. But Paul says, no, in your prayer, while you're praying, you are thankful. And then the God of peace will be with you. What, what is, why does Paul, Paul is saying, when you pray, when you are in pain, you come to God and you talk to God, but you also come humbly and you say, God, whatever you do, however you work here, my trust is in you. It's why Paul, he put it this way in Romans 8, 28. He says, and we know that for those who love God, all things Work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good. The most concrete example of this is the cross. If we saw Jesus at the cross, we would see him. And what would we say? We would say, this is wrong. This man, he healed people. This was a healer. A good man. This is unjust. It says, not okay. God, where are you? Where are you in this injustice, God? What good could come from God's son dying on the cross? In the greatest wrong of the world, God accomplishes the greatest On the cross, the injustice of the world is paid. It is why when Jesus says in John 16, verse 33, says, I have said things to you. He was just talking to his disciples about him going to the cross. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world.
God takes the brokenness of life, the pains of life, the divisions of life, the injustices of life, and he weaves them together to bring shalom, to bring peace. This is what we learn about peace, that it's not the absence of pain, and that in the midst of it, when we align our mind to God's truth, we can have a new perspective that can bring peace, but there's more. There's more. Lastly, peace comes from being a peacemaker. Being a peacemaker. Look again at our text in Philippians, in verse 8. Paul, he's recounting the things to think on. And I love how he qualifies the truth of God. He says, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. He's like, you need to know when you think on God's truth, where it leads. It leads to love. And again, being reminded of the, the occasion with which he's saying this, there are two women who are not at peace or experiencing division. And he says, I want them to agree in the Lord. You know, God wants you to experience peace personally. And in experiencing his peace, extend it to others. After all, God's peace is not just a personal peace. The truth of God's story from Genesis through Revelation, is a God weaving together not just peace in individuals' lives, but peace in the whole world, a social peace, social shalom. Uh, one philosopher, speaking of God's peace, he puts it this way, Cornelius planning it. He says, in the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder at its creator and savior. Open doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. This is God's work. He is bringing peace. He is working together good. He is taking what is wrong and bringing healing and justice and unity. And he has called you and me to be expressions of that peace today. And so as we close, what does it look like for you to be a peacemaker? To be a peacemaker. And being a peacemaker will require two things of you. It's not just saying, yes, I'll be a peacemaker. Two, two actions that being a peacemaker requires. Being a peacemaker requires that you know the pains of others. You know the pains others experience. And second, that you take steps to restore. That you take steps to bring peace. It begins with acknowledging that pain is not just something you experience. And then it requires taking steps to bring peace. So I want us to get practical this plays out both in, in individual pain and relationships, but also socially. So I want you to take a moment and think about who's a person, who's your Eudea? Who's someone that Paul would say, oh, I hope this person can experience some reconciliation. 
Think of that person. And here's what you need to know about he or she. Whether it's a family member, former friend, coworker, here's what you need to know. They experience pain. All the pains we talked about before. All the pain of feeling alone. The pain of oh, struggling to believe that there is, can be any goodness. The pain of, being, of groaning so much that your bones just feel like they're clinging. Your flesh is clinging to its bones. The pain of physical exhaustion. This person experiences pain. They are not immune from it. And also, you need to take steps to bring unity. A step can be simple. It can be prayer. Praying for them. Praying, desiring God's peace be experienced in their life in the midst of pain. Uh, maybe it's bringing a person in to mediate. This is what Paul does. He asks someone to be a mediator. He knows that sometimes there's just relational division that we need help with. And someone to come in and bring us together. Maybe that's a step you can take to invite a peacemaker. And, but know this person has pain. And consider what's a step that you can take to bring healing. And lastly, socially. Socially, God desires to bring justice. He desires to weave in our world when the fragments of our world are falling apart, are unraveling. God wants to weave it together and bring shalom, peace, human flourishing. So as we look at our world, we don't look and say, you know, pain's not so big a deal. Just think, think differently, everyone. Your pain's not that big of a problem. No. Like Paul, we acknowledge the wounds in our world. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. It is wrong. It is, it is not right to be happy at wrong things. We grieve. We lament the pain of the world. And we look at people, every single person, Christian or not, Every single person, especially if they're not in the same political party that you identify with, every single person is a person created by God who experiences pain. And they're trying to make the most of life, trying, and we acknowledge their pain, and then we see ourselves as a peacemaker, entering in, loving, caring, listening, Inviting them to do the same with us. God has placed you. He wants to extend peace in your life so that you can experience flourishing and personal shalom and you can invite others to experience the same. Jesus truly is the Prince of Peace. May we experience that in our own lives and may we extend it in our world. Let's pray. God, in the midst of all the messages that are bombarding us this Christmas season, messages that saying we need a certain product, message, messages that are trying to woo us to find peace apart from you, 
messages that say we aren't enough, need more. God, in the midst of those messages, may you be enough. May we find our satisfaction in you. And may we delight and desire a peace that surpasses understanding, that that is experienced as a fruit of your spirit, taking your truth and rooting it in our mind and in our heart and then being expressed in our actions. Help us to experience and extend peace. Amen.